Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. So today we're going to talk about zoonotic diseases. Now when I was a technician, if somebody said, can you name some zoonotic diseases? I wouldn't even have a clue what a zoonotic disease was. Um, I would have just assumed it was something that we had gotten from animals that would be potentially like in a zoo, right? So I'm just going to kind of go over like what a zoonotic disease is, what some of the common ones are, uh, how to avoid them, and like where you can find resources for this. So a zoonotic disease is something that is a infection or a virus or a bacteria, something like that, even a parasite that can be transferred from humans to animals or animals to humans. So anything that you could get potentially from an animal. And, you know, the hard part with our job is like we not only see dogs and cats, but we also see lots of other stuff as well. Wildlife. Uh, when they come in and need to be euthanized or think about like small pocket pets that we see birds that Dr. Smith sees like there's there's actually quite a lot of things that we could potentially get zoonotic diseases from so I'm going to go over a list of them but we're just going to talk about a couple ones that we would normally see like something that's a normal basis thing or just things that are more prevalent in our field than other things all right this is a long list Here's the cool thing though, is if you don't know if it's something that's zoonotic, you can go to the CDC and look up like zoonotic diseases between small animals or whatever. Or if you're specifically worried about like one particular disease, you can go to CDC uh, and type in that particular one. CDC, by the way, is the Center for Disease Control. Uh, The whole name is actually the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I don't know, apparently they didn't like CDCP. Who knows? But the CDC, you can go to their website, you can look up that specific disease, and it'll tell you if it is something zoonotic or not zoonotic. That way you just kind of know, like, is this something that can transfer to you? Uh, A lot of times it'll tell you, like, how it transfers to you. It'll tell you, like, what things you can do to prevent it from transferring to you. And then what animals are the ones that actually carry these things? Because even though, like, some of them may say like it's like avian influenza like we know avian influenza has been passed to other dogs like there are other animals and stuff as well right so you can look all those up it'll tell you exactly what to do with them super cool website so some of the most common ones that we are going to see on here are going to be things like hookworm infection avian influenza like we were just talking about uh it can be the uh, Lyme disease, uh, brucellosis, which is mostly seen in like uh, cows, sheep, things like that, but dogs can still get it. It's even kind of a common thing in dogs that have uh, a lot of miscarriages, like they'll get it from the male who ended up having brucellosis. Just an interesting fact. Uh, you can also have the bubonic plague, you know, the really cool interesting things about the bubonic plague like there's lots of different podcasts and stuff on it and there's lots of different research and stuff on it because they were like hey the bubonic plague is from the rats and the mice carrying the fleas that caused the bubonic plague but now they're starting to think uh those gross humans are the ones that potentially brought over the bubonic plague and we just blamed it on the rats yeah rats are not that dirty anyways 
uh, Cryptococcus, Campylobacter, for anybody who has done their microbiology, Campylobacter is a bacteria, and it is potentially something that we can get. Canine influenza, cat scratch fever, ringworms, tapeworms, certain types of E. coli infections. Uh, here's a crazy one for you. Fish tank granulomas is actually like a bacteria that's in fish tanks that can actually cause you to have disease. So for anybody who ends up having like, you know, seeing a fish, which I have once before, so you never know. Uh, tularemia, I'm going to tell you about that one later. That's going to be my story because there's a crazy tularemia story behind this. Anyways, Giardia, uh, canine influenza, hookworms, herpes virus, like certain types of herpes virus. Those are usually like in monkeys and stuff, but potentially you still could, could get it. Uh, Lishmania, leptospirosis, Lyme disease, MRSA. We think about MRSI in dogs, but MRSA is another common one that you could potentially get, especially with people who, when they come in, they're like, I work in the healthcare field, and then they have some weird infection on their dog. You should be wary. It could be that they had given their dog MRSA, and now you don't want to get MRSA. Anyways, ringworm rabies, uh, raccoon roundworms, which is Baliascaris, uh, rat bite fever, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, ringworms, roundworms, salmonella, sarcoptic mange, tapeworms, ticks, uh, roundworms. I think I said that already. Sorry if I've repeated some of these. I can't remember all the ones that I've done. Uh, toxoplasmosis and tuberculosis. So my point is not to just like overwhelm you with like the thousands and thousands of things that could potentially cause us cause you know zoonotic disease the goal is actually that if you hear it and you hear it again when a dog comes in or a cat comes in or a bird or wildlife or whatever it is that comes in and you're like hmm that name sounds kind of familiar i wonder if this is something that's a zoonotic disease you don't have to remember all these things. Like I said, there's just so many of them. There's no way you can remember all of those things. But if you have a resource to go to to say like, oh, this is something that I think could be potentially something we have to worry about, then great. Then you, you'll have a better idea of what to do if that's the case. So let's talk about real quick what some of the most common ones are. And then we'll kind of talk about like what things we can do to help prevent to make sure that we don't get those diseases from animals. Real quick. If you hear a lot of banging on here, I'm really sorry. I do my podcast under, like in this room downstairs. Anybody who's been to my house will know it's the office. But um, right up above me is the couch because it's the living room. And that's basically Nora's bed. And she runs. Ask Lindsay. Ask Lindsay how much she runs in her sleep. It's ridiculous. And it makes a lot of noise. So if you hear banging, I'm not like, you know, wrestling over here or anything. It's actually Nora running above me. Anyways, back to the podcast. So some of the most common ones. Ringworm is going to be probably one of the most common ones. So ringworm is going to be a disease of the skin. And it's usually going to be like it was actually named for in people. It shows up as a ring. So it's this red ring. Of like uh, it looks like red and it has like a lot of dry skin in the middle of it in our animals it doesn't really show up as a ring it just shows up as like patches of bald areas 
and sometimes you can like put a fluorescent light on it so those black lights we use for when we have um, cats and dogs have scratches on their eyes you could use that to light up some of them and it'll like glow and you're like oh geez this is a ringworm so if you see ringworm or you're suspecting ringworm or you see just like these patches of alopecia or not having any hair then you should kind of suspect that this could potentially be it especially if it's like a kitten or a puppy even more common for them to have those if you see that put gloves on that's best thing you could do put gloves on so it's just not touching you um, the other things is just you may washing anywhere that the pet did touch you so like I mean you know you have to hold them for us to be able to like do all the testing and stuff for it anyways so if you like hold them against your body and it's against your arm and stuff or you're rubbing up on them kissing them and stuff it could potentially go anywhere on your body so ideally wearing gloves to handle them but if not like if you're already like been handling them just wash as best that you can the other thing with ringworm so i had mentioned that you could like do that black light but that's only about 50 percent of the time that'll show up and the other 50 percent of the time we don't know until you send hair samples out to the lab and then they get the results back like uh, depending on which test they do but anywhere between like three days to two weeks now if it's two weeks later and you suddenly have this round red thing on your arm then definitely ask the doctor did that pet end up having ringworm because then you potentially have ringworm so best thing prevention you see that there's there's some areas of no hair just put gloves on immediately uh, another one is going to be salmonellosis this is more common in um, like our reptiles, birds, uh, baby chicks and stuff. Again, just like best thing is just to wash your hands. Salmonellosis is a bacteria that lives on them. And if you like handle a reptile and then you go and eat your lunch afterwards, your chances of getting salmonellosis is, are higher. And it usually causes some pretty bad GI upset luckily if you're not immunocompromised it usually doesn't do too much harm but for those people who are immunocompromised it could do a lot of harm for them another common one we, we come across is leptospirosis lepto i'm going to get into a lot later because there's like so much that goes into lepto but usually if you see a dog that has lepto uh, it used to be that we would gown up we would like wear gloves and wear masks and all these other things and we found we don't have to necessarily do all those precautions. Lepto is typically going to be spread via the urine. So as long as you're not touching their urine, you're usually okay. But it can also be spread other ways as well. So it can be spread from like mucous membranes. It can be spread from um, open areas like open sores and stuff into your open sores or into your mucous membranes. So anytime you do see a lepto case, best idea is to put gloves on and potentially put on something like a face mask so that way it just doesn't get into your mouth and do your mucous membranes you still have like mucous membranes on like your eyes and stuff so so trying to cover up any wounds mucous membranes as much as you possibly can to just try to make sure you don't get lepto giardia is another common one think about all of those puppies that are like pooping all over their tails and then they wag their tail in your face because they're so excited to see you and then now you got it in your mouth and now there's giardia on in your mouth and you don't even know it so giardia usually causes diarrhea and it causes diarrhea in us as well 
and it's pretty common for dogs that have drank standing water to be able to get it. Again, I'll probably go into that in another podcast, but usually dogs who drink the standing water then get it and then it goes through their system and then now you have it. So if you know, some of the common things that people will find is that they're having uh, GI upsets. So they're having like mostly diarrhea, sometimes vomiting. They'll have like uh, really bad cramps in their abdomen. And also it's been reported that your butt is very itchy. So the best way to prevent this is again, like washing your hands, using gloves, trying to make sure that if there's like a dog that has a lot of diarrhea on it, uh, you try to wear masks or something so it doesn't get into your mouth because it's usually a fecal oral transmission. So from the dog's feces to your oral cavity, which can be from so many ways, right? Even from like the dog wags its tail and it gets poop on your sandwich that's at the counter or something like that could spread it for sure. Or it's under your nails and then you go take a bite of your sandwich and then you end up getting it. So ideally wearing gloves. The next one is going to be like roundworms and tapeworms. Like think about how many puppies have roundworms and how many kittens have roundworms. It's a good amount. So again, fecal oral transmission. So if you have your kitten or puppy that you're handling their feces, wearing gloves. And then when you're doing your the fecals, so the, the direct fecals or the float fecals, wearing gloves when you set those up as well. And then washing your hands afterwards too. Same thing with like after touching them, wash your hands. Like you'll see me constantly. I touch an animal, I wash my hands. I touch an animal, I wash my hands. It's a it's a constant thing. Like I'm always washing my hands. Another interesting disease that we just don't think about is brucellosis. So brucellosis is something like when you talk about brucellosis, I usually think about it in like cows, sheep, goats, things like that. It's usually like in their milk and stuff. But it's also actually in breeding dogs as well. So it typically comes from the male and then during intercourse, it transfers to the female. And this is usually when we'll see a lot of um, like deformed dogs or puppies. And uh, if you see a lot of dogs that have like late abortions, this is typically what that's from, is from brucellosis. And you can test them for it. Like there are testing to be able to send out for it, but most people don't. They're just like, oh, we have we didn't you know have all of our puppies we lost our puppies no big deal i'm just gonna breed more puppies right but um the way that this is transmitted to people like for dog owners who are breeders they're usually not coming into contact with like the uterine fluids or semen or um a lot of the blood that they would normally be uh, in contact with for us in the veterinary field like those are the main things and think about the one thing that I said right there I said the uterine fluid when do we feel or touch uterine fluid when we're reviving newborn puppies so that is the best time to make sure you are using your gloves because you have no idea what's on that puppy it could for sure have brucellosis which then can be transferred to you but also you can transfer a lot of things to that puppy as well. You can transfer infectious things to them. So using gloves and then washing your hands again really thoroughly with soap and water are, are some really good key techniques to try to make sure we don't um, get brucellosis. 
And it's just not something we commonly talk about, even though it's actually pretty common in dogs. But it's just not something we typically like talk about as being like, oh, make sure you don't get brucellosis. Because it's not something we physically see. Like think about ringworm. Like you physically see ringworm on your body and you do not want other people to see the ringworm on your body. But brucellosis is not really one of those things. It doesn't affect your skin. It goes into your bloodstream. So... You know, that's one to really just like make sure when you're using, when you're reviving puppies to, to uh, wear gloves. The next one is going to be tuberculosis. So again, not a super common one. It's actually more common in like cows and stuff. And even uh, more common in, in animals that are like shipping. Uh, it's like a lot of cows that ship and stuff. It's usually more common in them but it still is found in dogs and it's basically a bacteria and it can affect literally any species. All species can potentially get tuberculosis. It was something that I had to worry about um, in seals and sea lions even. So it's an inhaled bacteria and usually what will happen is that let's say the dog coughs because it lives in their lungs. It coughs and then you inhale that droplet from that dog's cough in the lungs. Now you become infected, it goes to your lungs, and it infects your lungs. Does anybody remember, I mean, I had to do it all the time because I was in vet school, but I don't know if anybody else had to do it as often as I did. Uh, in school, we had to do a lot of TB testing. I think they even did it for like in college to make sure like the college dorms didn't get affected by it. But they like put this little bubble under your skin and then they check it, I think it was like a couple of days later, and see if you reacted to it, if the bubble was big or if the bubble was just kind of gone. So that's what they were testing for was tuberculosis. TB is tuberculosis testing. Now, if you were to get it, then you're going to have kind of those same symptoms like coughing, uh, difficulty breathing, sometimes like a fever or a lethargy, weakness, things like that. This one's hard too because if you have a dog that's coughing, you don't know that it's tuberculosis. It's not a common thing that's diagnosed in dogs. But think about how many coughing dogs we have come in there. If, let's say, their owner had tuberculosis and then they coughed on the dog, the dog can get tuberculosis and then they bring it into you and then now you can get get tuberculosis. For us, like they do have medications for tuberculosis, but in dogs, unfortunately, like most of the time, if they're diagnosed with tuberculosis, um, the the public health authorities usually say to euthanize the dog. So kind of the best way we can prevent ourselves from getting tuberculosis is if there's a dog that's coming in that has a cough. You know, ninety nine percent of the time, it's going to be like kennel cough, heart failure, things like that. But you just don't know. So the best thing you can do is going to be have some sort of facial covering on. And again, gloves. Gloves are always going to be a good thing to use and washing your hands afterwards as well. But it's not commonly on your hands. Like I said, it's usually that the dog coughs, coughs in your face or near you. You inhale that droplet and now you get tuberculosis. All right, a common one for cats, cat scratch fever. So cat scratch fever, even though it's named cat scratch fever, like it can actually come from anything that's going to have like saliva and stuff on it. So the cat will like lick somebody's open wound or you'll get a cat bite or a cat scratch. 
um, anything that's going to go through the skin surface will potentially create this bacterial infection that goes from cats to humans. Usually you'll have some sort of um, symptoms within about three to 14 days afterwards. It starts out with just like a really mild infection and then uh, usually like you'll have a raised bump in the area where that bite or penetration into the skin was. It eventually goes into your lymph nodes becoming enlarged and then sometimes you'll have like these giant red streaks going up your arm or your hand or whatever it was that that you had wherever you'd been bitten and uh, you know think about all the times like you've been scratched or bit and like don't think anything of it You're like oh it's just tiny oh, it's no big deal the swelling will go down you really like the best thing you can do is go to the um, urgent care and then just have them put you on medication for it. You know, ideally you want to try to get ahead of it so that that way you don't get this cat scratch fever because if you get cat scratch fever, like you could potentially be hospitalized. My friend who she had like, like look, she had like 30 cats, okay? She had like 15 of them in the house and 15 of them outside, but she got bit and scratched all the time and she had been at work and a cat bit her at work. And she was just like, ah, eh, whatever, I get scratched and bit all the time, no big deal. She didn't go to the clinic, and then it wasn't until she had had those red streaks up her arm that she was like, oh, shoot, I think I actually have cat scratch fever. She went to the urgent care, and then she ended up having to go back every day, twice a day, to get injections. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think that they did IM injections, like... And the best place to do IM injections in people when it's like going to be a really big substance is going to be on the butt cheek. So if you want to be poked multiple times a day in the butt cheek or potentially hospitalized while they're giving you these IV antibiotics, then I suggest you just go to the clinic after you get bit and go get antibiotics. All right, MRSA. So in dogs and cats, we typically find that they get MRSAI, which is... Methicillin resistant Staphylococcus intermedius. That's a lot, right? So in humans, we get MRSA, which is Methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Usually, MRSAI is usually not something we have to worry about. It doesn't usually like cause problems in humans. It's usually not a zoonotic thing, unless you're like really immunocompromised. I think there's been a couple of weird cases, but. Most of the time, it's going to be MRSA that's the problem. And the most documented cases have been from a pet whose owner works in the healthcare facility. So let's say they work in healthcare somewhere. They will sometimes just be like a carrier of it. And then they, you know, they have it on their dog. They're like petting their dog, whatever. Sometimes those, their dog will get some sort of infection from it too. But most of the time, it's that it's just on them. And then now you have open worn, open wounds. Let's say you just got bit by that cat, right? You have open wounds and then now you're going over and petting that dog and now you potentially could, could get MRSA. So again, just like using gloves, washing your hands really well, like those are kind of the best ways that you can uh, avoid getting those. All right, we are going to talk real quick about rabies because I did talk about rabies when we talked about... Um, all of those other things that can cause tetraparesis or paralysis of, of all four limbs. But 
Rabies, luckily we don't have to worry about it too much here because we just don't have a lot of species that have it, but it's usually here. It's going to be from bats. Uh, I'm from California, so it was skunk and fox that were there. But here, usually bats. So like, let's say a dog was found with a rabid bat and then they bring it into the clinic because they're like, ah, my dog's acting really weird. It's being like more aggressive than it normally is. And it seems a little weirdly neurological. Um, you should immediately be worried about rabies and don't touch it. Usually the people who have been vaccinated for rabies are the best ones who are going to do that. And typically that's going to be the doctor. I, I don't know if any of the technicians have been vaccinated for rabies or not. I'm not sure. I know it's not a requirement for to be like an LVT, but it in most of the vet schools, it is a requirement to have rabies vaccine. So typically it's going to be the people who have been vaccinated for rabies that should be the ones that are touching those pets. And even then, like we still want to be super careful because any sort of like blood discharge, anything, mucus can have rabies in it. So like, let's say we are doing a, um, necropsy like we have to unfortunately do rabies testing and i've kind of talked about this before but for rabies testing uh, after we euthanize the pet there is no way before we euthanize the pet to be able to know if they have rabies you have to euthanize the pet and then we send in the head to the health department and they analyze the brain to tell us whether the pet had rabies or not but that that's a process that's a long process so if we are taking off the head then if you're standing there watching us and you get like blood in your eye or in your mouth or something like there's a potential for you to get rabies. So you want to wear protective stuff in that case. So ideally for us, we're wearing you know, goggles, gloves, a mask, um, stuff to try to help make sure that we don't get rabies in our system. And anybody who's going to stand around watching that as well should do the same because you don't want to get it in your system, especially if you've never been vaccinated for rabies. The post injections that you have to take are pretty painful and they're not 100% that it's going to prevent it or cure it. Like it's actually like there, there's not been a good cure for rabies and not many people are going to survive rabies. And when they do, there's only been a couple of documented cases of people who had survived rabies and none of them are living a good life. Like they all are pretty jacked up. So ideally we want to just like do as much as we can to prevent potentially getting rabies. All right. Next one is going to be toxoplasmosis. This one, oh man, this one is one of my favorite ones. So the reason why is because most people feel that if they change the cat's litter box, then they will get toxoplasmosis. And then if they are pregnant, they will lose the baby. That is not the case. And we actually got one of our cats when she's unfortunately already passed away, but we had gotten one of our cats because a pregnant woman had given up her cat because her doctor told her that if she had the cat, that she would get toxoplasmosis and she would lose the baby. So she gave the cat up to the um, adoption agency. She was a little Persian cat, super sweet. Uh, so we ended up getting her luckily, but unfortunately that, that she was told the wrong information. So toxoplasmosis, what is this? Toxoplasmosis is a parasite that it's usually passed from 
cats. And it's typically that the cat goes outside and it kills a rodent or a bird or some other small animal that had this parasite and then eats it and then they come in the house and they it shed through their feces. Now where do they go when they have their feces, right? They're going to go into the litter box. And so like I said, this is usually like people or doctors might say don't have a cat or don't clean their litter box because you'll potentially get toxoplasmosis. But what happens is the cat goes to the bathroom in the litter box and if it's cleaned every day, it can't really become infectious. The toxoplasma parasite doesn't become infectious until one to five days after the cat has shed it in the feces. So if the, let's say the cat goes to the bathroom in the box every night, you clean the litter box, it usually should not be a problem. But let's say you didn't clean the litter box for four or five days, then yeah, absolutely, there is a chance that that toxoplasma can transfer to somebody. But let's say you just wear gloves, wash your hands. Again, like these are all things that are going to help protect you from not getting toxoplasma. It's most commonly talked about in pregnant women because it causes the most problems in pregnant women um, because it can cause, unfortunately, it can cause um, miscarriages. So one other thing is just to keep the cat indoors because if the cat's indoors and it's been indoors, there's no chance that it could potentially get that toxoplasma parasite. Unless I will say we have uh, our cats, they do hunt mice in the house. Unfortunately, we have mice that come in the house because we have a lot of trees around us. So it's very common to have wildlife. So occasionally we do have a mouse that comes in and the cats could potentially get it that way. But in most situations, like people who are in apartments and stuff, it's unlikely they're going to come across birds, mice, things like that. And unlikely that they're going to have those problems. Um, other places that you might find it too, though, are still going to be like sandboxes and stuff. So if you have kids, usually like just covering the sandbox so the cats can't go in and like poop in it. Because, I mean, you gave them a giant sandbox. Of course, the cat's going to go poop in there. But again, washing hands, using gloves, those are going to be the big ways to reduce that risk. Now, if you've noticed, like the big theme for this is a lot of this is using gloves and washing your hands right? So pretty much like before you eat anything, before you drink anything, before you go smoke, before you go to the bathroom, cleaning cages, um, wash your hands. That's like one of the easiest ways. Like I said, you'll see with me, like I'm constantly washing my hands. Using gloves, another big one. If you know you're going to be washed, like cleaning out the, the cages and stuff. Again, think about all those dogs that have giardia and roundworms and stuff. Just cleaning the cages with gloves so that you just throw them away. Super easy to do. Uh, another big thing is going to be just like facial protection. So some sort of like face shield, mask, something like that. A lot of times that will help too with just trying to make sure you don't get things into your mouth. So that's going to be things like, you know, the giardia from the dogs who are wagging their tail. Uh, during dentistries, like you're in that mouth and there's just a lot of nasty stuff in there, right? So just wearing a mask during that is going to be helpful so it doesn't get in your mouth. Flushing out wounds. Think about how many wounds we flush out, how many dog bite wounds, cat bite wounds, um, all of those bacteria. Like we talked about cat scratch fever, the cat bites you, has the bacteria that goes in there, right? What about the cats who bite another cat? And then you flush that wound, abscesses, the wounds, and then all of that stuff goes aerosolized into your mouth. 
Those are still potential ways of like getting it or aerosolized into one of your wounds. Those are still potential ways of getting it. So like wearing some sort of mask or something just to make sure that it doesn't get all over you. And there are lots of other different protective methods, you know, just wearing things like goggles or glasses to make sure that those, those, all those fluids and stuff don't get into your eyes. Isolating pets that you think could potentially have any of these things. That's, that's another hard one. We don't know. So if we like try to keep them isolated using the isolation room or keeping them in their, their owner's car, things like that can help too, to try to help isolate them. Thinking about like our kennel cough dogs, we put them into an into a room and we just kind of like say that this is like a kennel cough room now. Like those are all great things to, you could do for any pet. If you see kennel cough or you see a cough and you don't know, you know, is this tuberculosis? Put them into a room. Then we don't have to worry about exposing them to anybody else. You can get all of your protective gear on to try to make sure that you're prepared to go into that room. And if it's not, let's say it's just kennel cough and it's not going to be tuberculosis. You know what you did? You just used all of that stuff to be able to make sure that you didn't pass that kennel cough on to somebody else because you're going to take all of it off now and you're going to go see the next dog. And now you decrease the chances of giving it kennel cough. But the other big thing is just if you see something that you're just like, oh, I think this could be a zoonotic disease, just going and looking it up. Like, let's say it's lepto. You know, if we find that it's lepto and you're like, oh, how is that transmitted again? Go to the CDC. It'll tell you how it's transmitted, what you can do to help prevent you from getting it, and just keep yourself really safe. And then tell everybody else, hey, I looked this up or printed off that says like leptospirosis. You know, it's a this is what you should do is wear gloves and stuff and put it on that pet's card so or on that pet's cage. So that, that way everybody else knows this is something zoonotic and this is how we're going to help protect ourselves. The other interesting thing about zoonotic diseases is technically we're also supposed to report them. So anytime we have lepto, anytime we have giardia even, like we're supposed to report it to the health department. There's some that are just like really high on the list. Like you have to report this regardless. Like you have to report this if an animal suspected of it versus there are other ones like giardia. It's like, mm, please report this. That'd be great. So we can like kind of know the numbers but if they don't, it's not a huge deal. So ideally, we do want to report these things if possible. All right, story time. This isn't my story. This is just like a story about tularemia because I just think it's just crazy. Okay, so tularemia, that is a bacteria not usually caused by dogs and cats, although they can get it. It is can be caused by like ticks and deer flies and stuff and wow that's just not interesting what is interesting is that you can get it from like infected carcasses like rabbits muskrats prairie dogs other weird rodents and stuff and cats like i said are are potentially ones that can get this and there has been a report of a hamster that had bitten somebody a kid and they ended up getting tularemia as well. But one of the most well-recorded ways of somebody getting tularemia has been on like farming areas like tractors and lawnmowers. So does anybody know uh, Martha Stewart's Vineyard? So at Martha Stewart's Vineyard, there was apparently a dead rabbit there 
and the grass was really overgrown and somebody ran over this dead rabbit with the lawnmower which then like cuts it all up right like it just cuts it all up in the in the um blades and it aerosolized it and made it into just like droplets of of contaminated air and dust and then people started inhaling it on Martha Stewart's vineyard and so many people got sick one person like actually died from this but if you know like what um Martha's vineyard is it's like this little island and this is like the coolest thing is it's like the one known time in history it actually happened in 2000 but the one known time in history where a lawnmower resulted in this aerosolized tularemia and just got everybody massively sick. Uh, I think it was the guy who was mowing the lawn that died, but I don't remember. But it was just one person that died. And then that they did research on this being like, oh my gosh, like this could potentially happen. Like it could aerosolize. And then they found out that this was a good way to prevent bioterrorism because now they found out that tularemia could be aerosolized and then kill people. So they were able to study it off of Martha's Vineyard because of somebody running it over with a lawnmower. Super weird, right? Anyways, I'm sure probably don't people don't find it as interesting as I do, but I think it's just crazy. Just like, you just run something over the lawnmower and then just suddenly it's like bioterrorism. All right. Thank you for listening, guys. Um, I am not sure what I am doing next week, but um, I'm going to figure that out. We'll see. And then uh, I am going to, again, still try to have some people on so that we can like do some other podcast stuff as well. It's just been a little bit hard with uh, my daughter being like sick all the freaking time. Every time I've tried to come in to do it, I've had to stay with her because she's been really sick and staying home from school but i will get out there i will do podcasts with people and um just try to get a a lot of you on because i feel like this is a good thing for all of you to to be able to be on have your voice heard talk about what you want to talk about anything you want to talk about all right so if you have any questions let me know and i will see you guys later thanks